Hey guys, Andrew Dowling here and Mitch Kurtz. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Ultimate Podcast. Make sure to hit like and subscribe because we've got heaps more content coming out and it's really fun and great and we love it all. Also very good. <laughs> hey guys, Andrew Dowling here. Welcome back for another episode of the Ultimate Podcast. With me as always, my co-host Mitch Kurtz. Mitch, hey. how are you doing? Good, thank you. Very special guest with us today, um, hailing from the other side of the country. We are so thrilled to be joined by Fleeta Solomon, the CEO of Little Green Pharma. I bet you have probably heard of them because they are one of the biggest cannabis companies in Australia. Fleeta, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. This is really exciting. Yeah, no, well, we've got, um, I mean, we've heard so much uh, about Little Green Farmer along the way. And yeah, we're just really excited to dive into a few of the topics. So maybe, you know, before we go into LGP, perhaps just how did you fall into cannabis? Because I, when I did a little cursory review of the old LinkedIn profile, I see that you, like pretty much everyone else in this industry, has come from a totally variable you know, background, you were doing something to do with mining and physio. Anyway, so I'll, I'll throw it to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, historically, everything I have, have, have done previously has been in the health space. Um, I'm an exercise physiologist. So that's my background. So I did exercise and health science and sold um, one of Australia's largest workplace providers of corporate health programs and behavior change programs. So that was, I guess, my first career path. And that was changing people's lives for the better. So that was working out on remote mine sites and oil rigs, um, and really just improving their life to live a better life. And yeah, that was really remarkable. Uh, it was tough because it was a service-based industry, but I always knew from there that I just wanted to sort of change lives. And that theme has really progressed throughout my career. Um, and then there was another business that I had, which didn't actually eventuate, but I do have to talk about it briefly because it really helped to get me into where I am today. And that was based on a water technology treatment business, uh, these silver oxide balls, I guess, or it's about the size of marbles that um, release silver oxide into contaminated water to render it drinkable. So here we had a solution for the billions of people across the world that didn't have access to safe drinking water. And the purpose for saying this is that there were, I've never had such an amazing feeling about jumping out of bed in the morning and going, I'm going to work today to change the lives of all of these people throughout the world, particularly in sub-Sahara Africa, that don't have access to safe drinking water. Like this is a thing. And we had the World Health Organization on board, the UN water on board, um, the founding father of Namibia. And it was the most surreal and, and amazing feeling. And when that one fell through, um, to no fault of our own, it, it I kind of went into a state of mourning. And I was like, what am I ever going to be able to do that has such a social impact, but also a commercial opportunity? So I actually um, sort of threw in the books for a while and well went back to uni and did an MBA. And it was during my time at the MBA that, that cannabis uh, was legalised in Australia for medicinal use. And it was just serendipitous because I started to look into it. And then I was introduced to a really remarkable man just here in Western Australia who is really well connected, um, but also made me very aware of a patient or a young child suffering debilitating seizures every day. And the only thing that would reduce her seizures was accessing cannabis. And that was on the black market at that stage. Wow. And it was really then and there sitting on a bench down at Yelling Up in um, the southwest of WA 
that I kind of sat next to him and, you know, would look at him and looked up and sort of went, what if we could create cannabis, a legal cannabis medicine growing right here in WA and change somebody else's life? Yeah. And that's exactly when Little Green Farmer was born. And that was sort of on the 11th of January, 2017. Wow. That's very close to wine country, isn't it? Yelling it? Yes, it is. It's yeah. right in that Margaret River region. So it's, uh, yes, we're surrounded by vineyards. So it's just so beautiful down there and wow. oh, the most divine location. So all of our guests that come and visit the facility, they, it's mandatory that they stay for a couple of nights to experience the Great Southwest because it is phenomenal. That's that sounded a lot like an invite. I, I don't know that if I got the same thing there. But... Yes, come on over, please. We love visitors. Love having visitors. It's just it's three hours from Perth, so it's a bit of a mission. Well, we do know that that you know, um, I guess growing conditions are similar to that to some degree with, with with wine growing conditions. So, you know, some of the the best the best wine comes out of that Margaret River region. So it stands to to you know. Uh, to reason that uh, there could be some decent crops coming out of that particular part of the world. Well, it makes sense. Our um, head of cultivation is actually a viticulturalist and, and is one of the biggest winemakers as well. So, uh, you know, just loves and understands plants. And that's that's where we were very fortunate because he was also had a hemp license to begin with. And that's kind of the connection that we had and how we got started into the medicinal cannabis space. But you're absolutely right. And as a viticulturalist, there are many down there. Um, yeah, we believe we're onto a winner in terms of our our site manager and cultivation manager. Yeah, that's that is amazing. So take me back. So 2017, you realise that yeah, obviously you're in one of the best locations in Australia for for growing. Um, what happens next? Yeah, so then we look. I just had to put the commercial hat on, and I love starting up businesses. I've always I've always worked for myself, so. That's, I think, what probably my strength is starting something from nothing, so from an idea. Um, so it's about getting and engaging certain people who I thought could be mentors, as well as uh, commercial people, uh, groups that could potentially start some funding. So we were looking by then almost bootstrapping, but a little bit of a sort of Series A and some investment funds. Never wanted to list, always wanted to be a private company. I've never been in that public space before, didn't have any desire to. Um, it was always meant to be a private company and <laughs> I just wanted to be able to do our thing. I had no idea if we were to fast forward six years to where we are now, there is no way that I would have guessed that this is where we would be. You know, I, <laughs> I, I guess I didn't really think of where I'm going to be or how am I going to exit. All I was thinking at the time is how do we create a little company called Little Green Farmer that's just here for the right reason to help some patients. You know, and at first I was kind of, my mindset was, can we help another patient down in the Margaret River region? You know, and then it went to WA and then to Australia and then a year or two later it went to thousands of patients across the world. So um, it, it evolved very organically, not necessarily according to my original business plan. So <laughs> I, think I had to be very flexible in terms of listening to shareholders because in the end it was pretty, pretty much shareholders that dictated where the company was going. Yeah, wow. Did you did they ever have the idea of rebranding to Big Green Pharma? Or that, <laughs> that was never on the cards? Yeah, look, it's <laughs> a funny. So dumb. It is, it is well, it's just no, because it grew so quickly. I remember in the early days, it was like, yeah, there were just a few companies that really shot 
you know. Yeah, well, they had to go to medium green farmer first. (laughs) Yeah, and then it'll be extra large. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Look, I do have a lot of people. Most people love it. There are some people that don't like it so much. And I remember one shareholder saying to me, um, why are you called little? It just means that you can never grow big. And then I, my <laughs> response, I quite liked my response, with, which is, well, did you tell that to Microsoft? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, totally. so I'm kind That's of like I, I wanted to play on the, the word little because I wanted to come across as we're really approachable, we're really friendly, we're really, um, we're farmer but we're not the synthetically manufactured big pharma company. We're, we're, we're the little green farmer. And most importantly, I wanted our patients to know that we are so approachable that if you pick up the phone, we have a real person right here in WA that will answer your call. And that's what we still do today. And that is the most important thing for us, which nobody actually knows about Little Green Farmer. It's our customer care team who we hand select so carefully because they are so integral to our business and yet nobody sort of knows unless you're an LGP patient nobody knows that we have this team and it's almost like a call center but it's for people that yeah our our existing patients that that ring to ask us questions and um, we we love that side of it so again the name Little Green Farmer was kind of chosen for that reason as well. It's true it is it's a disarming name anyway I, I really like it but but so how quickly was it before you you know got the licenses and and everything it's the Take me through that. Yeah, so it actually, in hindsight, it went quite quickly, even though, you know, the waiting periods felt like a really long time um, back then. But I think we were fortunate because we started with a really small operation and our business model was very different to a lot who are out there. We, rather than sort of build it and they will come type philosophy, we very much uh, were running on a really tight ship and had a really small amount of capital just to see that we could actually produce a cannabis medicine. So we had a really small room. So our facility is an indoor facility and we literally had a handful of plants, might've been 60 plants, I think, back in the day in one room. Um, And then working with the Office of Drug Control, we were the third company to get a license. And then, um, you know, and then obviously we needed the permits so that we could actually start producing. And, yeah, by 2018 in August, um, so what's that? So a year and a half after the idea came about, we had our first cannabis medicines that patients were using. Wow. And and I guess that kind of caught us off guard. We didn't think that we would be the first company um, and we weren't trying to be. It, it just happened. And I think it evolved because we weren't trying to grow too big too quickly. We just wanted to run with a few plants There were very few patients at that time. So we didn't even know, you know, the business model in terms of how much we needed. So we just wanted to prove that we could grow the plant to TGO 93 standards and and have all the testing and compliance in place and then finally produce a medicine that, that patients could actually use. And it was really once that happened and we had our first feedback after our first six patients in that August of 2018, and that's when we knew, right, we've done it. We've got a lot to learn, but we have a proof of concept and we're ready to expand. And and really that's what happened. And so we sort of grew organically that way. And, um, yeah, until such time that we needed to expand our facility down south. Uh, but that comes with a lot of time and a lot of expense. And, and it was, we did get to a point, we got we can grow about three tonne of biomass in our uh, WA facility here. 
However, we did get to a a stage where we were outgrowing it and needed to expand again, Um, but we were very fortuitous and and came across another facility that was already in operation um, over in Europe, in Denmark, where the future of our business wants to be and we recognise that Europe is the future for us. Uh, And so instead instead of expanding our West Australian operations, we decided to acquire this facility from uh, actually from canopy growth and and refine it to our way uh, you know we have a unique way and it's always different to any other group um, you know everyone's got their their different methods and and business models and so we decided that we would yeah that, that we would go down that route instead of expanding our Australian ops totally stole uh, stole my segue there I was going to start talking about the European connection seriously um, yeah. when well, curiously, when you say, um, you know, Europe being the future, do you mean that from the perspective of um, supplying Europe or bringing things in for supply from Europe to Australia? What's what's kind of the, you know, without giving too much of the board strategy away, like what what's the high level on that that you could maybe share with us? Yeah, sure, sure. And that's sort of evolving all the time. But I think where I was going is that very early on, in fact, when the Federal Health Minister announced that Australia was opening up for uh, export, that was the time that we really felt that we weren't going to make a huge return on investment in Australia, um, mainly because of economies of scale. And although that Australia is an, an exceptionally important market to us because this is the heart of our business, it always will be. Um, and it is so important for proof of concept, but it's just a numbers game. You know, when you look at the population of Australia versus what's happening in Europe, and here we are, we've got this head start because of the mutual recognition agreement, um, thanks to our very high standards of GMP, you know, TTA manufacturing. So due to that unique opportunity, we just thought we're in a really great position to be able to potentially take on the EU market as well, because the Canadians were struggling a little bit to get there just because they had to have GMP uh, audit. And even then the jury's still out as to how far they can export or if they can only export into sort of one European country. Um, And, of course, the US can't export at all. So here we thought, look, Australian companies really have the opportunity. And so it was back in probably early 2019 that we took that stance that we need to be in Europe. That's where the future growth is, um, mainly because we have a lot of pressure and accountability from uh, and for our shareholders. So as much as we love Australia and that this is really important to us, very integral, um, we see the future, you know, versus the 26 million people in Australia versus the 380 million people in Europe, that's excluding Russia, uh, you know, you can kind of see where where the lucrative markets are going to be as they start to emerge and open up. So um, that was, yeah, that's where I was heading originally. Yeah. Um, but right. I do think that Europe is actually really important now for bringing in high-quality GMP uh, flour into the Australian market, especially given the changes coming on the 1st of July. Yeah, I, I definitely see it as two-way because I know, um, you know, anecdotally, there's a lot of interest, it would seem, from European countries in, in having Australian flour. Um, they know it's grown under certain conditions and to, you know, a certain high standard um, and, I think as the cultivation um, that's occurring in Australia 
improves year on year. I think we just get better and better at growing better quality products. So I, I know there's an appetite for it there. And equally to your point, if, if you're at capacity with WA, then, you know, plenty of opportunity to import from, from Denmark and have it all done under GMP over there. So yeah, massively support that. I, you touched on it just, just now, but we've, we've obviously followed um, as, as part of the very public uh, nature of of a company like LGP, we see announcements about um, investors. We know you've got some high profile investors, um, Gina Reinhardt to name but one. Um, what's as the CEO? Um, what's what's it been like having a I guess a pretty broad mix of investors? What's what's that journey been like for LGP? Have you found that along the way you've always been able to? To, to find funds from investors as and when you've needed to go or has, have there been times that have been harder than others? Oh, there's definitely been times harder than others. And the hardest time that we had was probably six months ago when we did, I think, a four million placement. That was really tough. You know, the market's really tough. Uh, previously before then, and we have done a lot of raising, um, we, I hardly had to sell anything. It was more just catching up with some investors and saying, this is what the plan is. And overnight we would raise, you know, oversubscribe by a hundred million. And, you know, we were knocking back capital, which now I think, what do we do that for? Um, and, and so times really have changed and investors absolutely without a doubt across the world are now looking to profitability you know, gone are the days of what I call sort of exploration, like gold exploration. You know, it's really now in that production stage where investors do need to see a return on their investment. So it is all about the profitability pathway. So we are really fortunate in that we are very much, you know, almost there, like our sites are set on that now. So most of our capital, our CapEx is all done and um, we're just sort of now enjoying that ride to get to break even. So I think because we've got a... a, a pretty clear pathway ahead. Our key investors particularly, let's call them our top 10, um, they understand exactly what's going on all of the time. We catch up with them very regularly. They're so important to us and they really help to dictate what we do in the company. And I couldn't do this without them. Because, you know, they're, they're almost, they're so supportive that you can run things past, past these investor groups and they see it all the time. You know, this is what they do. And they really challenge you. They challenge our business model, our financial model. They challenge everything. But it's great because if you second guess it all, you've got you've got someone to bounce ideas off. And there's probably two yeah. or three in particular that we really look up to. Um, but we do have 12,000 shareholders, and that's a lot to look after. And, of course, of those 12,000, yeah, we've probably got top 10 that we catch up with regularly. And of those, there's a top three or four that we're, I spend a lot of time most of my time speaking with and yeah. um, keeping them abreast of of our ideas, our our plans, and then you know they'll give us their two gobs worth as well. It's, I think it's really transparent, actually, just what you're describing. I just I think about the other style where you know the CEO just puts out the quarterly um, results and has to then face the angry mob if it's not been favourable. Uh, it sounds like you have a really good working relationship with investors. I imagine you know, that that just probably gets them more excited about being part of, of the journey. Yeah, look, we do. Um, I agree, except I don't get to speak with 12,000 shareholders and a lot of yeah. our shareholders don't have 
you know, sign up for our email database. So they only get the ASX announcements. And so there's a lot of people, there's thousands and thousands that I'm missing. And so I still do get um, when the share price is down, like it has been for the last year, I, you know, I do get a lot of, um, I won't say hate mail, but certainly <laughs> I get some queries. But I actually, my rule is, um, and, and I think when people can understand our story and they understand where we've come from and they understand the people that we have in this business and the passion, dedicated, um, not only the customer care team, but our medical liaison team, you know, when people realise what we're actually doing, they then they sort of understand our story and our journey, then they're fine. So I make it a rule is that anybody that reaches out, I personally will contact them. So I, if they if they leave a number, I will call them immediately. Mm -hmm. um, and failing that, I will email them and I open my, a direct line and I'll say, here is my number. You call me anytime because it's so important. Every single one of those shareholders plays a part in our story. Um, obviously, the top 10, top 20, I know very well. Um, but it's it's we obviously have a lot of shareholders that I don't know personally. Um, I do I do often go to the different cities, capital cities, and, and offer to catch up with our shareholders because I love telling our story and I love them being a part of it. And I and I want to get to know them and I want them to know me. And more importantly, I want them to know our team and the energy and the passion and the reason why we do what we do because that changes everything. The, the idea, I mean, of being public to me is, is so scary to have, you know, forces beyond your control that might not even be relevant, but influencing. I mean, we see it all the time in America at the moment, even today. I think, you know, especially there was an announcement about cryptocurrency going wild based on, you know, somebody's perception. Yeah, that kind of stuff that exists is just, I mean, Surely, surely some of the investors know that that uh, cannabis has a twenty percent leeway anyway, right? You've got to you got to account for that <laughs> when you're dealing with all the figures. This is true. It is so hard. It is so hard to do financial modelling on this plant. <laughs> oh my goodness! But I imagine, kind of speaking to Andrew's point originally, that you know, without going too far into it, by ha but having some of those, let's say, higher profile public figures as investors, I think in my head that does kind of work towards destigmatizing the plant you know when you're getting when you're getting you know front page news type investor uh kind of cases put out there you know we had we had dimmer damien hardwick on the show um the other the other week and and it's just like that that type of thing when people that have that notoriety are getting behind the plant i think it works in in favor of the industry as a whole so that would probably be my commentary on on answering the question that was asked to you <laughs> from Andrew. No, definitely. Sorry if I if I yeah didn't answer it. I wasn't. No, no, it, I didn't mean it like that. I uh, yeah, look, I agree. I think, you know, gosh, hasn't the landscape changed so much in the last mm. six years? You know where we were, where we've come from, and where we are. And just in another two years, it'll change significantly again. Mm. And so you're right. The people, you know, now we're talking about psychedelics and the down scheduling of that, and that is incredible. And who mm. would have thought it would happen so soon? So, um, you know, Australia is progressive, and I, as much as it feels like it's slow and we've got some hurdles, it, it has moved quickly. Um, but we're so grateful for some of our shareholders, yeah, like like Hancock Prospecting, who have been really supportive, um, particularly when we went into that the Danish facility, um, but also uh, Thorny, who's who's now our biggest shareholder, and you know they've been supporting us all the time, and um, you know they're a really influential uh, group of people, and just to have their support as well gives us so much confidence that what we're doing is the right thing.
Yeah, amazing. Yeah. So, well, talk to us. Maybe I'm just curious as well about um, these changes that obviously pending that are coming soon around GNP and, you know, that the, the overarching aim is to, to level the playing field. Um, I, I'm curious, where do you think that will leave Australian licensed producers? Do you see more opportunities um, to, to be, I guess, servicing even maybe competitors with private white label products or, or how, how do you see LGP um, post 1 July? Oh, do you know what? I was kind of hoping you wouldn't ask me this because um, <laughs> I have a very different, I, I, I don't think anybody knows what's going to happen on the 1st of July because yeah. I, Look, at first I thought, oh, this is great for Australian producers. You know, there's there's the top sort of, there's the 80-20 rule, right? And you've got sort of the top 10, 20 medicines out there or products and then it, and then it tails off. And now that there's, what, 500, over 500 different products. So my initial thought was once that comes into play, uh, it'll probably get rid of a lot of the tail end. And so a lot of that tail end, because they're, they're the, probably the groups that are, charging uh, a lot less and it's often imported product and so if they disappear because they're not up to gmp standards then obviously that patients can potentially move across but i'm actually now i'm not thinking that i'm kind of going i don't know what changes is going to actually happen because i think people will find loopholes i think there already are yeah. there's a huge amount of flour that's that's being imported um, it, it really doesn't change us, Little Green Farmer, you know, our business model. We've always done that. We've always been GMP, so everything that we do. So in terms of our operations, it, it's sort of negligent, but it's more about what happens to the competitive space, um, which which will it will be interesting and, and nobody nobody actually really knows what's going to happen. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's and it's an interesting one as well. I was, you know, I guess looking at it through the legal lens, and considering different ways that they could have regulated it. I mean, it's they're unapproved therapeutics, so it would seem possibly against that backdrop to be onerous to be asking sponsors to provide documentation in advance of supply. But yeah, by all accounts, it's, you know, that there is a latitude that's being given to industry that, you know, it's expected that you have your GMP cert certification in order on your imports, but you know, you'll only have to produce those if we ask for them. Um, so it's, it, yeah, I, I'm with you in the sense that I'm very curious to see what happens post 1 July, whether or not there's active um, enforcement activity or audits and that, that sort of thing. Yeah, it'll be interesting. It will be interesting. And I think, look, there's so many GMP products coming in already um, and to find GMP in Australia and packaging is not that hard anymore. Um, and in terms of the policing side of it, I mean, we haven't even got across and on top of the uh, unlawful advertising, you know, and promotional stuff, which Little Green Farmer was caught up with, which was, you know, extremely unfortunate for our business because it, it was soul destroying when that mm. happened. And when we went out quite openly and publicly with the reasons and, and the infringements that we were fined with, and it was really upsetting. And But our doctors were so amazing and supportive. You know, we got done, for example, for third-party social media posts because it, yes. named, yeah, because it named our product and said, your product duh, 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 was helped to change my life, thank you. And we got fined for that because we didn't take it down, so it was seen as promotional. 
And then the other one was the CMI, so the consumer information sort of uh, medicines leaflet that you have inside your medicine package. Uh, we had that on the website, but that wasn't so much the issue according to the TGA. The issue was that we had in the link, which was in fine print down the bottom, so it was that information instruction leaflets, not promotional, it's that black and white boring document, but because the name of our products were on the, was on the link, that was us promoting it. And we got fined nine times for that. So when you look at that in comparison to potentially other, you know, what else is happening in, in the space, we were pretty upset by that. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's another topic altogether. But, no, no, but I, I share your, to totally share your frustration, Fleta, because, you know, and I, I don't envy the job that that particular unit, the advertising unit within the TGA has, has to do. But I, I look at it and just go, well, okay, is it required that you dole out the same fine nine times or, you know, I know there's been instances where, you know, it's both, um, you know, for example, one type of um, contravening conduct, for, for want of a better term, can actually fall as both a contravention of the poison standard and then a separate contravention under the particular advertising um, part of the, the Therapeutic Goods Act. And to me, it, it does seem like overkill to, to have sort of several bites of the cherry for the same um, offending conduct. But, you know, that that's the, the way that they play. And I, I also think, you know, I mean, it's, it's not like there's any incentive for the TGA. It's not like that money goes into... Um, you know, into their pockets to to fund their enforcement activities. It goes straight into Commonwealth consolidated revenue. So it's, uh, yeah, it, I, I find it interesting. And, and I think like everyone in the industry, everyone's trying to do the right thing. We'd always, for any TGA people listening, we'd always just appreciate a call. Just let us know if there's something that you see that that we're doing, you know, if it's not egregious or it's unintentional and clearly the, the examples you've just cited would fall in that category. I mean, a phone call would have saved them the time taken to actually write the, you know, the 60 page letter. Um, but instead, you know, we see black market operators continuing to to operate without any consequence. So it's not, it's not all that fair, I think is my big rant. Oh, look, it was a good lesson learned and we're happy to sort of sort of take that on and go, right, let's own it. But now, we need to enforce this across the entire industry and everybody needs to come to the party. Um, yeah. it, and, and it's a really great opportunity and time to sort of conform and make sure that everyone's compliant. And, and that's, you know, part of what the ETAA, the Emerging Therapeutics Association of Australia is doing as well, is to get a code of conduct, um, which we can all abide by. And then, and then have the body that's talking uh, to the TGA rather than all these different companies that, that's trying to communicate. So I think um, hopefully that will evolve for the for the best of um, everybody because we want this industry to, um, to to thrive. We want our patients to thrive. We want this. We want to show the rest of the world how it's done, and Australia yeah. can do that. So uh, it, it, it's good for the for the long run. And what about the? Um, I suppose just. Um, you just touched on the ETAA. Um, we have the Australian Medi Medicinal Cannabis Association. We have the Medicinal Cannabis Industry Association, MCIA. I mean, this uh, this is to be expected when you have a, an emerging industry um, that you know different people will stand up and and say, you know, well, actually, here's here's what we think are some good ideas to contribute towards advancing this industry, but. 
how I guess I guess what's your take on you know this I guess minefield of, of different industry associations? Do you think it's helpful, or do you do you think it would be better? I guess speaking as a as CEO of, a, of one of the larger ASX companies to have a, a consolidated group. How do you see that? Yeah, look, maybe once it becomes a more mature um, industry, but I think at the time, and even when this third one was was formed, look, each one is slightly different. Mm. And we chose, and it's not that we didn't want to be a part of one, but we wanted to go with an industry body that was really going to represent what we, what our beliefs were and what our values and what we were going to get out of it. So one of them's more patient-driven, which is great. Um, and, and we want that patient outcomes as well. But for us at the time, and this is now going back sort of a, a year or two, it was all about GMP and the quality is, and, um, you know, the regime that we're working with. And it was really about how do we make this uh, um an equal playing field and so that's kind of where this the third one stemmed from so look I get that there are three yeah I don't know I maybe it's a shame but at the same time I think each one serves a bit of a different purpose and I think that there'll be potentially some um coordinating between between the three so I don't think it's such a bad thing okay no very good um now I wanted to also talk just a bit a bit about I mean, you've got over in WA, uh, Brian Walker, uh, who's been on this podcast before, great man, um, and Sophia Mormond. Um, we have David Edishank and Rachel Payne here in Victoria. It looks like Jeremy Buckingham will be elected um, probably by the time this podcast gets released, has been elected <laughs> to the Upper House of New South Wales. We've got five legalised cannabis um uh, politicians and we know that the levers for legal change ultimately fall in in the commonwealth realm we'll need amendments to the narcotics act but i just want to ask you i know obviously um lgp's focus is medicinal at this time do you think though that if we were to see cannabis legalized in the future that your business is versatile enough to be able to take those opportunities in that space? Yeah, it's very possible. And I, what I say now is never say never. Um, yeah. <laughs> however, we do have, and we always have had a very strict sort of pharmaceutical focus. And and that, again, is driven by our shareholders. And so, we, you know, we need to consider our top shareholders as well because they have, um, some have philosophies and, and uh you know, this company is based around the medicinal pathway, but it, but Germany's kind of throwing that into turmoil a little bit just with what's happening there. And, of course, we're so involved with Germany. We're just across the road, uh, literally across the border. So we're sort of, and you know, we're in Denmark. So it's a two-hour drive just down, not even, down to the border there. And yeah. so, of course, depending on what legislation happens there or how that, that pans out over the next year or so, will also help to shape the future of our company. Um, so we're open to it. And I, but I guess there are lots of, um, formalities that would need to happen and of course we've also got a team you know that are often thinking about what if um, yeah that's the and, great thing about Andrew, it is it is little green farmer you're trying to turn it into big green right. company <laughs> <laughs> big, big, big green retail yeah <laughs> well that could be a wholly owned subsidiary anyway um, <laughs> but talking so I, i'm and please forgive my naivety i'm you know, got my head knee deep in, uh, in everything that happens in Australia. But what what about um, what is the situation in Germany at the moment? Because I'm I'm actually not across that. Oh, look, it's I mean Germany's growing, growing quickly. 
Probably, probably not as quickly as Australia. I reckon Australia is the fastest growing um, market at the moment. So that's why it's such an important industry yeah. or market or jurisdiction. But Germany is so important, particularly in Europe. You know, it is, it's the number one country there. Um, a, a little bit like Australia, we don't have exact clarity on the numbers, but it's in the hundreds of thousands of patients who are benefiting. I think it was 20, nearly 20 tonne of flour was imported into the country last year. Not saying that, that all of that was dispensed. It could have been sort of unsold or um, uh, not dispensed at all, but that was sort of the figures. So Germany is a really interesting one. Uh, it's it's a very important jurisdiction for us. It's helped to shape our business model because not all Australian companies can actually export to Germany. Um, you know, they do have different guidelines. The pharmacopoeia is a little different to our Aussies. It's it's It tends to be more strict, generally speaking, except for the micro count <laughs> in the recent changes for Australia, which is really strange. Um, um, but then you look at countries like France, for example, which is, it's, it's more strict. Uh, yeah. France and even, and even Italy, which is really hard to get in with. But, uh, you know, Germany is still very important. We don't have our own brands there. Um, we're a small amount of oils, but we actually white label. So we have a very different business model for Germany. So we mm -hmm. white label everything in into that country. Um, but we're expecting to sort of send about a tonne into Germany this in the next six to 12 months, mainly from our Danish facility. So that's, that's set up really well, um, particularly for the German market. But, yeah, France is a really interesting one. I think that's, you know, where... There's a study happening at the moment which Little Green Farmer uh, is doing the bulk of. So there are four suppliers um, and, yeah, we're doing probably 60% of the volume. Uh, they've just, the government very kindly extended the trial. And um, why wouldn't you when the companies, you know, are paying for the medicine? So, um, <laughs> so, so we're out of pocket. So that's not great. So our investors are always like, what's happening in France? But, uh, look, it'll be great when it does hopefully catalyze into a medicinal uh, cannabis legislation because, of course, we we think that we'll have some good brand equities and great relationships, not only with the government, but also the prescribing doctors and the hospitals. Mm. And, there, are, you know, we've probably got 1,200 patients uh, at the moment that's that's utilising our medicine. And, and that's actually coming from Australia because our standards are so high in, in Australia that um, wow. that's really important. Yeah, that's that's part of the, the, the query that I had around the, the, the Danish move. Like, I do understand it, but at the same time, I know there's a lot of demand for Australian produced product and and the quality like and, and and in my head and i'm sorry if this is maybe one uh, one of the tougher questions but in my head moving to europe makes sense when you're saving on things that are really hard for example australian labor but danish labor is not cheap <laughs> as far as i'm aware um so I, I, like i'm really curious around around the kind of economics with, with what you can share around that because you know the, the, obviously the danish or any scandinavian quality you'd put on par with australian so i'm trying to understand the how that is a more effective approach in in my head at least other than a fully you know equipped facility that you got for an absolute bargain which is yeah <laughs> well, i mean you nailed it mitch like yeah, it's a high cost jurisdiction and it is on par with australia like swiss danish made medicines and that's exactly mm. why we did it um okay. and you know what we did we with that that's our business model you know we can't compete with a lot of the low cost products that are coming in so we have that premium end and that will allow us to get into countries such as france and and italy that have um, such a high regulatory 
you know, hurdle to jump before you can get even get into the country. Like Germany now is is quite easy to get into. So these other countries, even Poland, you've got to register a product first. So our products are undergoing registration at the moment before you can start selling. So every country is very different. The UK is probably the easiest to sell into, um, and then Germany, and then you know, if, if, you know, France is very different. But I think, look, we did think long and hard about that. But the fact that we picked up that facility, you know, cents in the dollar. You know, we picked it up for 20 mil and Canopy Canopy bought it for or spent upwards of 120 million. Um, wow. You know, and to pick it up for 20 mil and it's already, you know, we, that is humming along. That facility is just absolutely insane. Like we have right-sized that business and the fruits of our labour, what we had to do is change out the genetics from, from canopies, what they had in there to our own. And so we have a development program that's been happening there for the last year and a half. And now we've got 30 unique strains coming out, uh, which is incredible. And they're exclusively, um, we, we work on exclusive agreements with certain groups around the world um, and in certain countries. And so, you know, we're able to do that. And we have that. Our costs are great. Like the huge... The biggest cost for us over there was power in, in because of the war recently, um, but even that started to stabilise and the government's going to help help a little bit on that side of things. But even with the power, our costs are well under well under a million a month um, and what we can get out of that, that's a 30-tonne biomass capability, that facility, and we're only sort of working in 10%, not even. So the great news is, is that we can, you, you know, we can ramp up and down as needed. Um, and it's just, it's, it's a huge facility and it's just got a state-of-the-art manufacturing, a post-harvest facility, but also a, an independent lab that can be positioned there. And so we'll have in-house testing as well, which we'll work on once we um, sort of get to profits. We'll look at the next stage of our, of our business where we're being really cautious about what we're spending on at the moment. But um, it did make sense for us. And the other thing, um, Mitch, as to why, we would be in Europe is because logistics are so hard. You know, the cost to send one bottle to the UK, mm. if you if you do temperature controlled like you should be, I know some groups don't necessarily, but if you do the right way, then that still costs you $15,000 one way, you know, let alone. So if you, it's only if you start sending hundreds of thousands of bottles does that economies kick in and it makes yep. the, um, the freight worthwhile. And then you've got the permits, the import, export, all this kind of stuff. Transport is one of our biggest costs. And so to be in the European landscape, like to be right there on that landmass where you, the Germans can come back up their trailer to our Danish facility and bye-bye, you know, it is, we are saving a huge amount on on those costs that um, the you know the which you just don't factor in to begin with, but the eventual vision of the company will be that Australia will look after the APAC region um, because of the logistics, and also and then and then the European facility will look after Europe. So that was kind of the, the goal. Yeah. No, and if you and I mean with the uh, staff resourcing, if it gets too expensive in Denmark, you can just staff it with Australians. Just <laughs> uh, yeah. We had some Aussies. We did send some yeah, of our exactly. over there for culture because culture is so important. And <laughs> and you know, buying the Danish facility, it was it was tough because you've already got this existing culture, an existing group of people that are working there. And when you don't hire people personally, it changes. You know, yeah. we and pick our people in Australia and the little green farmer team because it, we ha we have a brand 
to uphold and a reputation. Um, fortunately, they're still like-minded in Denmark, but we have had to sort of infiltrate that and and send a few people over and create a different culture because it is different. So there are those sort of nuances, but um, nothing that we can't work through. And and now that Danish facility is is incredible. And, and, and once again, if you happen to be across there in Denmark, you are welcome to visit because uh, she's insane. Yeah, we'd Amazing. love to there. That, that sounds incredible. Gdansk, mate. So <laughs> is that, um, and just to confirm, so that one is in Euland, is it? So it's in Denmark. It's it's in central in near uh, Urumsa. It's spelled oh, like nice. yeah, cool. on the mm. island of Thun. So it's about an hour and a half from Copenhagen. Yeah, yeah. very cool. Been oh, there actually. Which Have is, you? Yeah, yeah. Had uh, yeah had some time in in Denmark for a year with Andrew as well a little bit. Um, so we know the area well. Just don't. I, I, don't never, I never really got outside of, of Copenhagen, though. To be fair, I think you've probably seen a bit more than me, Mitch. But um... yeah, I think so. Just you just can't talking about importing Australians. You just can't import Norwegians. They're they're far too expensive. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, for sure, yeah. they have actually got a really great um, uh, export program, and so you've got one half the government, which is extremely supportive. So the, the Danish government love business. It's called Ode, um, uh, Invest Denmark. And that side is really fabulous and very supportive. And we'll do anything we can to get you here. It's a very life science driven country. There's a lot of technology that's been coming, you know, coming out of there. But then you've got the flip side of the other government, which are not so into cannabis. And so it's actually there aren't many patients uh, in in Denmark. Uh, which is a bit of an issue, but that will yeah. change. It's obviously a small country, but, when, but for us, we're not there just to focus on Denmark. We're also there to focus on the export. So that was important for us. Yeah, that makes sense because otherwise when you're in Copenhagen, you can just go to Christiania anyway. So. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Oh, bitch, come on. It's not GMP. Anyway. Um, I think that's why people go. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, look, thank you so much for for joining us, Peter. We know how... how Busy life must be, CEO of, of an ASX company. So we're very grateful for your time. Um, it's been a really interesting chat, actually, just hearing a bit about European opportunities. Um, and yeah, I certainly, you know, I'm in awe of, of what you've built over really not even six years, or are we maybe just coming up to six years? It's um it's really impressive. And we um, yeah, I guess we'll just be very interested observers for the next six and beyond. Oh, guys, thank you. That's really lovely. Thank you so much. Such a hoot being here today and having a yarn. And um, yeah, look, if anyone's got questions, I'm more than happy to to answer as well. So you can reach out at any time. But thanks for the opportunity to say hi. Yeah, no, Appreciate thank it. you so much. Well, we'll, um, I guess, until next time, either we'll we'll catch you over somewhere near Yallingup or maybe uh, over in Thun, um in Denmark. But uh, until then, take care. Thank you very much. Thanks, Fleeta. Bye. It's Andrew Dowling here and Mitch Kurtz. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Altmed Podcast. Make sure to hit like and subscribe because we have way more content coming out. And you got to stay up to date with it. It was good until you did that. Okay. Sorry. <laughs>